Explain what it's like being, you know, in a in a state like that that just gets so much attention. You're probably tripping over candidates and reporters covering those candidates. I would imagine. The joke we make is is that towards the end of end of the election, you can't swing a dead cat without taking out two or three candidates. I mean, you you can't avoid bumping into presidential candidates. We were at a hotel a couple of weeks ago, and we literally ran into Asa Hutchinson. And the next day, the next day we went out uh, to an event in Portsmouth, and we ran into Will Hurt. It, you just can't avoid these people. They're 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 everywhere. And 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 I think what it speaks to is just how much people are willing to give folks a shake so that if you're running a strong grassroots campaign, you can break through and have an impact here in New Hampshire. But New Hampshire voters are also very strategic. They, this is a lot of, for many of them, it's not their first rodeo. They want to make sure that their vote matters. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential. And here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for joining us on another edition of American Potential. We appreciate you listening and watching on YouTube. Uh, Lots of people now watching the podcast on YouTube. And our, our audio and video guy, Matt West, does such an awesome job in the production. And uh, it's, it's really great. If you haven't checked out uh, YouTube and our channel on YouTube for American Potential, please do that. Now, listen, we've, it's presidential primary time. And we did a previous episode with three state directors from Americans for Prosperity who live and work in the first three states that get to say who they believe is the best presidential candidate. Now, today we're going to focus on the state of New Hampshire, which is the first in the nation primary state. Do some residents get excited about the presidential primary season? Because they will have multiple opportunities to talk to presidential candidates face-to-face. How about uh, the way Granite Staters, do they take this opportunity for granted? Do they show that by having one of the highest voter turnout rates in the country? I want to welcome Greg Moore to the show. Greg is the New Hampshire State Director for Americans for Prosperity. Greg, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. No, uh, New Hampshire does not take does not take the primary for granted. Uh, we've worked hard to secure that. We've passed laws that make it abundantly clear that New Hampshire will vote first. Much to the chagrin of of the national parties, and in particular the chagrin of the Democratic National Committee this year, who <laughs> tried to relegate New Hampshire behind South Carolina, which will not happen. And New Hampshire will vote first, and uh, and the Secretary of State has all the authority to move it around. But the citizens of the state really appreciate it and and are committed to it. To take for example, in the, the last time we had two competitive primaries, both on the Republican and the Democratic side. Uh, there were there were over five hundred and fifty thousand people who voted in either the Republican or the Democratic primary, and this this is a state that has nine hundred and twenty five thousand wow. registered voters. Yeah. So so this is something that we take seriously. We take it as a responsibility. We view ourselves as as the uh, quintessential tire kickers within within the within the, the primary process. We feel really feel as though it's our job to vet these candidates for for the nation. And people people regularly go to candidate events, and it's not just it's not just the activists. You, you, it's great that you go to these events. You're well past the activists. You're into people who are just really committed and curious. And uh, 
to your point, there's really three phases of the primary, in my opinion. The first phase is a curiosity phase. That's when folks are getting in. That usually lasts up until the end of summertime. Then right, right about now, right about when summer's ending and we're starting to schools back in, and that's really when people start to really hone in and start to dial in on what's going on in the primary. And then, <laughs> then you have the last, like, month or month and a half, which I describe as the fatigue stage, where you've just <laughs> been hit with so many mailers, so many TV ads, so many phone calls, so many texts, so many people at your door. It really is a case where at that point, uh, people start to lock in who they want to support. And then they get they just get frustrated with, with all the other different camp campaigns and other entities uh, continually just, just harassing them. But New Hampshire citizens really wait and, and uh, you, you'll see this every four years. It doesn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democratic primary. Every four years, you'll see candidates who really start to move the needle basically within within the last six to eight weeks. And that's really when that movement starts to happen. And you start to see those shifts. Uh, now, I, I, I can't give you a time frame on that because our primary has been anywhere from early January to the end of February. But uh, that's usually when, when voters decide, okay, we're professional voters here. We have to make up our mind and let's start to take this seriously. And we're very good at it, particularly on the Republican side. And Democrats here in New Hampshire don't seem to be very good at picking who the eventual nominee is, but Republicans are very good at it. Yeah, it, it does seem that that's the case. I mean, uh, not only in the in the primary, uh, you've been pretty good at picking who the eventual nominee is. And part of that is when you're first in the nation, you give them that shot. If they if they end up winning New Hampshire, it's a it's a real big shot in the arm for sure. But even in the general, and maybe you can explain this a little bit, that the whole Dixville is a Dixville notch that votes very the very first people to vote for president. There's actually several locations across across New Hampshire. Yeah, where the the state law has an exception specific specifically. That if everybody on the voter file has voted, then then you can close the polls. And in New Hampshire, uh, the the times when elections begin and end, the hours that they begin and end, are mostly set by the towns. They have to be open a certain amount of time, but but the the, the state law says that once everybody on uh, every registered voter has voted, then then that the moderator can then can then end the election, and then you can do the count. And that happens in a number of towns. Dixville Notch gets the most notoriety, mm-hmm. but there's certainly a, a places like like Hearts Location and, and places like that that also conduct similar scenarios. And and it really does become a cultural thing where everybody gets together. It's like a party, and everybody gets gets together together just before midnight. Midnight strikes, and then everybody goes and votes, and then they close the elections, and then and they announce announce the uh, the winners. And and that's kind of a fun thing. It's not particularly determinative over who is going to end up winning the election, but it's it's a fun thing, and, and the media love it, and so they they definitely follow it every year. Every well, I, I think in the case of Dixville Notch, I mean, it's a very small number of people, right, who vote there. Yeah, I, I think you're talking in the order of 25 voters, right? Uh, right. So, so it, it, again, it's it's too small a sample size to draw any conclusion. All by the way, all the, all the towns that that do this, and there's about four or five of them. All of them are very, very small in the, right. in the northern part of the state, and um, which is more rural. And and so and so I think, but I think it's 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 important that these candidates. If anything you'll see is that is that every candidate will have a Dixville Notch event, 
where they go up and they try to woo the voters, the small number of voters, <laughs> uh, which probably is not the best use of the candidate's time, but they all do it because they all want to get that little juice of having won right. such and such a town. Yeah. Millsville is another one. And they're, they're, like I said, there's a handful, a handful of them. Yeah. So, and that's fascinating uh, when you talk about that. So do most people when, uh, you know, most people who are listening to this podcast don't live in a state like New Hampshire or Iowa or somewhere that gets a lot of presidential attention. Most Americans live in states that, you know, frankly, in, in a lot of ways may not even matter in, in some of these uh, contests because it's too late and the, the, the momentum's already pushed them. Explain what it's like being, you know, in a, in a state like that, that just gets so much attention. You're probably tripping over candidates and reporters covering those candidates. I would imagine. <laughs> The, the joke we make is, it, is that towards the end of, end of the election, you can't swing a dead cat without taking out two or three candidates. I mean, you, <laughs> you can't avoid bumping into presidential candidates. We were at a hotel. Uh, we were at a hotel a couple of weeks ago, and we literally ran into Asa Hutchinson. And the next day, the next day we went out uh, to an event in Portsmouth, and we ran into Will Hurd. If you just can't avoid these people. They're, they're, they're everywhere. And, and, and I think what... It speaks to is just how much people are willing to give folks a shake. They're they're absolutely willing to give folks a shake, so that if you're running a if you're running a strong campaign, uh, strong grassroots campaign, you can break through and have an outsized an outsized impact here in New Hampshire. But New Hampshire voters are also very strategic. They, this is a lot of, for many of them. It's not their first rodeo. They want to make sure that their vote matters. And so one of the things that happens is. And, and I know there's going to be a lot of discussion about will people get out of the race? Will people leave the race? And uh, New Hampshire voters will coalesce around voters at the end. And, and you'll, you'll see that happens every four years where a candidate will start to, to gain, start gaining some momentum. And then all the voters realize that candidate's gaining momentum and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that candidate really takes off. As soon as it, it was just towards the very end of the campaign in 2000, when John McCain just started to pull ahead of George W. Bush, mostly through the strength of retail politics. And and and, and in the end, once the voters saw that, once they, they thought that John McCain could win this thing, he ended up winning the race by 20 points. So I think that that's sort of a dynamic that is sort of unique, and it speaks to how sophisticated a lot of these voters are. They're watching these things very closely. They they, they cut through the white noise of all the TV ads and mailers and things like that, and they pay very close attention to the race and the race dynamics and, and the horse race, generally speaking. But that's that's really towards the very end of the campaign. This part of the campaign, uh, you, you get activists. There's a common joke in New Hampshire where, where they ask you, are you supporting that candidate? And they say, oh, I don't know. I've only met him three times. <laughs> and that's and that's something we see as it's sort of a real right. thing. The distinction between Iowa and New Hampshire really has to do with with a caucus versus an open primary. Right. And I tell people this all the time. I said, Iowa has the most spoiled activists in the planet and New Hampshire <laughs> has the most spoiled voters in the planet. And there's a, but there's a big distinction between the two. For, for Iowa, it's really about nailing down key individuals, key groups, because a lot of people sort of take their cue off of how certain leaders uh uh, where they're going, and so the endorsements matter more. Whereas New Hampshire, it's more like a free agent nation where everybody is everybody is doing their own assessment of the campaign. And one thing that's really weird is probably the only state in the country of which this is true. New Hampshire really could care less what Iowa does. It 
I, the Iowa caucus is irrelevant to the to the voters of New Hampshire. John McCain didn't famously twice did not campaign in in, in uh, Iowa, and yet he won New Hampshire both those times. You look through some of the list of of winners. Ted Cruz, nope, didn't care about that in twenty in twenty sixteen. Rick Santora won in twenty twelve. Nope, no one here ca- cared about that here. So it really is it really is a dynamic where we sort of go our own way, but the states after us really do look at who's won Iowa and New Hampshire, but it's really an odd dynamic and that we just really could care less what, what happens in Iowa. Yeah. So, and, and that is interesting. And of course we have, to have another episode with Drew Klein, who talks about the kind of Iowa and the caucus state there. Um, let me ask you though, do you have, I mean, are you in restaurants? Do people go into restaurants and having breakfast and just candidates just kind of walk in and stroll through and shaking people's hands or, I mean, does that happen in New Hampshire? If, if you go to any diner in New Hampshire <laughs> in this time, you are at risk. You're at risk <laughs> of a candidate walking in with uh, eight to ten television cameras uh, surrounding them. So um, you have to have your exit exit strategy planned out pretty clearly if you want to try to get out without without uh, yeah. trip, tripping over some of these uh, media outlets. But but that's a great thing, and some people might get annoyed by it. We we love it. We we as a, as a state, we love it. We take the primary very seriously, and and ultimately, I think that I, I think that it's reflected in how people want to have authentic conversations with these candidates, and we want to cut through all the noise because you can get away with a lot of this high powered rhetoric and talking points if you're if you're just working with the media and buying buying a lot of ads or in various forms. But New Hampshire voters will not let you get away with uh, just giving them sound bites. They are they are completely disinterested in, in that. And if you try that, and of course the, the media will then in turn follow up with the person the the the, the individual the candidate spoke with, then that individual is going to say, "Well, yeah, that person's that person's full of crap, or that person is just giving me giving me blowing yeah. smoke up." So uh, so I think that I think that it forces these candidates to be more authentic and more open. Because because the voters are spoiled and they expect it. Yeah. So you talked about that and being authentic. Uh, I have noticed I've been around politics a long time and I I particularly think of one candidate. I won't mention their name. They weren't a candidate for president, uh, but for a different office. But they would go to, you know, a diner or they would go to a, 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 a dinner or something and they would literally walk around table to table and it was so kind of fake. It was just kind of like, hi, I'm so-and-so. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Hi, I'm so-and-so. And it's like, how is that an interaction? Do you find, have you seen some candidates that are really kind of bad at the grassroots retail politics, even running for president versus some that were really, really good? And maybe you can talk about some that were really good and really bad, you know, past ca- candidates right. for president. Right. No, I, I think that, that there are some people who've been, who've been been fantastic at the retail uh former president clinton absolutely absolutely did a phenomenal job in new hampshire in 92 uh, i've talked to a number of people who were up to, uh, who were up involved in the campaigns and he would go uh night after night he would go out just looking to to go to as many cafes uh diners wherever he could go where he could meet people and go shake as many hands as he could and and he ended up finishing second, which everyone considered to be a huge upset. Uh, so he was he was outstanding at, at that. Uh, John McCain, with his uh, who famously had his his town halls 
we go would, would do his town hall, and after he had finished his town hall, he would go look for a local a local place that was open, and just go there and shake hands and have authentic conversations. Uh, New Hampshire rewards those people. It, it rewards the folks who actually get in there and 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 uh, are willing to put in the hard work to to actually meet the voters, understand their concerns, and really try to meet them where they are. Yeah. Um, how about bad ones? Well, but did you, was Bill Clinton walking around saying, you don't know how much I feel your pain? I mean, was that, is that he was kind of just telling everybody how much pain he felt? <laughs> well, remember, this was right after the the whole first uh, uh, scandal came out with, with him uh, and, and everyone, the Jennifer Flowers situation. Oh, sure. And everyone had written him off for dead. And New Hampshire is really where he came back to life. Yeah. And that's where he did, picked up the nickname, the Comeback Kid. <laughs> that's right. So, so, so yes, there, there, are, there are some good candidates. Uh, there, there's also been some candidates who haven't been, haven't been out, outstanding on the stump and really struggled and, and sort of fell apart. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about <clears throat> candidates who, who just uh, people had a lot, of, a lot of hope for. Fred Thompson was one who, in 2008, yeah. a lot of people had high hopes for. And he just didn't seem to connect well uh, with people. I remember going to several events in 2008 and meeting him with with huge expectations and and watching them sort of uh, fall flat as they did. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, someone like someone like Joe Biden, when he campaigned here three times and never finished higher than fifth. Uh, so you look at someone like that and you say to yourself, OK, uh, why wasn't he connecting? And, and I th- just think it's it's the the fact that that he uh, wasn't able to to sort of have that true retail gene. Uh, you can you can hot cover it over in other other states. You can't do it here. You can't be just bad at retail, and yeah. and and not be and and think it, that you're going to get be rewarded here. Yeah, surprising that Fred Thompson wasn't because he was an actor, and I guess after you know Ronald Reagan was such a great communicator, and he really did connect with people on an individual level. Um, you would have kind of assumed that Fred Thompson could do that, but it sounds like he, he wasn't that great at the retail politics side of it. It so. was, it was, it was really striking because like you, I, I had every expectation that he would be really strong in this area. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was, it, it was to me, it was in a case where it was just, I was just trying to understand w- what the disconnect was. Uh, there might've been other things going on. I remember, uh, Governor Perry, when he when he started campaigning here in 2012, he's a very personable guy. But at, for, for those people who might remember, right after, in 2012, Governor Perry had had back surgery just before he entered the race for president. And my understanding is is uh, he was just in a lot of pain. And so I think what happened is is that, is that his staff really didn't want to let him get in the environment. Then, oddly enough, when he ran again in 2016, he was just the opposite. He was a fantastic retail politician. So it can even show that the circumstances of your life can play a yeah. big factor in, in uh, how you're able to really connect at the grassroots level. Yeah. So what was your very first presidential candidate experience that you can remember? First candidate experience was the 1996 presidential primary. Uh, that was obviously Bill Clinton was see- seeking a second term on the, on the Democratic side. And there was a, a, a real Donnybrook of, of candidates who were running on the Republican side. Uh, Bob Dole, 
uh, Pat Buchanan, Lamar Alexander. Uh, ultimately, uh, that, and that was the order which which they finished on. Um, on actually, it was Buchanan, then Dole, then, then Alexander, as well as people like throughout the course of the race, uh, California Governor Pete Wilson, uh, Phil Graham, former yeah. U.S. Senator from Texas, yep, and uh, uh, Arlen Specter. It, it really was a, a smorgasbord of, of candidates <laughs> from all across the, the political spectrum. Yeah. And uh, and that was a fun, fun, fun uh, race to take in. I, I think that that uh, just watching it, that, that was a race where you really could see the ebbs and flows of the campaign. Um, the most chaotic one was definitely twenty the twenty twelve Republican primary, where it seemed like every month somebody else would get a, a bite at the apple. <laughs> so it was Michelle Bachman sort of had yeah. her day in the sun. Then Governor Perry got in the race, and he had his day in the sun until he had that unfortunate debate and and then uh and then herman cain had a day and a moment in the sun yeah. and then newt gingrich had a, had a month so every month it was it was a new candidate who was sort of the flavor of the month and and so that was probably the most the, the most chaotic uh race that i've seen here in a from a, from a republican primary yeah do you i mean you've been around this a long time do you still get excited about primary season every four years I get I get really excited about actually meeting the candidates and yeah. watching them. I like to right. go to a lot of candidate events and just just watch them, watch them what they do when they the time between the, when they walk into a room and, and and go and speak and the time the time after they finish speaking what they do before they exit the room. That to me is is what defines a lot of these candidates and are are they willing to to spend time talking with people and 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 some are more than others. And I, I, you just start to develop a gut feeling that the folks who are just happy to do the, that those retail those retail efforts before and after events, typically after afterwards. Obviously, if you're about to make an important speech, you don't, probably don't want to have too many distractions uh, beforehand. But uh, when someone just when when you see someone who just gets whisked away and, and disappears, you start to form an opinion that maybe this this person isn't going to do so hot in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's right. How about this this cycle? You've got, I mean, are all of the candidates that that, that we see on the debate stage, uh, and then you talked about a couple actually that aren't that weren't on the debate stage this last time. Are they all there? Are they? Do they all have kind of an equal presence, or are there some of the ones this cycle that you're seeing more than others? A- absolutely. Uh- and, and and I know it becomes it becomes a factor because w- when people aren't showing up and and, and uh, that becomes a thing it becomes a narrative and that really ends up being used against that candidate. Um, but we've been seeing uh, the probably the, the the most omnipresent one has been Vivek Ramaswamy, he, he who's here feels like every week. Um, <laughs> it, it, I'm, I'm not joking, and that, that that's not hyperbolic. Of course, it helps when you have your own private jet. <laughs> uh, but uh, beyond that, we've seen uh, a fair amount of, of uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley. She's been in New Hampshire quite a bit. Uh, and then on the other end, side, side of, the, of the scale, you have uh, someone like, for example, uh, Governor Christie, who has very infrequent visits to the state, and and Governor DeSantis, who um, who. who I think has has a real opportunity because he has a phenomenal infrastructure here on the ground. Uh, but as as we tape this, it's been it's been over seven weeks since the last time he's been in New Hampshire. 
Hmm. Wow. And, mm-hmm. and people see that. They take note of that, right? Absolutely. Now, the beauty is, is, is that you can turn that around anytime you want. You can, right. you can completely reverse that and just start showing up regularly, and people will, will reward you for that. Yeah. Um, and, and so for, for these folks running, it's an it's a asset allocation thing, right? Because yeah. a lot of them have to spend a lot of time raising money. A lot of them have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how much time they want to put into Iowa. They have to spend their time thinking about how much time they want to put into South Carolina. And I think that, that balancing all that is going, to be, is, is going to be one of the biggest challenges for every presidential candidate. But, but you know, you know the, the activists here on the ground doesn't care about that. Right, right. <laughs> they, they care about, are you showing up? Are you kissing the ring? Yeah, yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, that presidents have been made by the decisions that they make in this. This is a chess game, right? And I think candidates have decided, well, I'm going to put all my eggs in New Hampshire. I'm going to put them all in Iowa. I'm going to put them all in South Carolina, whatever. And so they give up on another state and put it in that. And, you know, maybe if different decisions were made in previous presidential elections, the nominees would have turned out differently. I mean, these really are big decisions that are being made by these campaigns about where they put their resources. That is a a thousand percent accurate. Um, Just, you just look through the years. Uh, Senator McCain said because because of his position on ethanol subsidies, which was to oppose them, he said, "I'm not going to campaign in Iowa. I can't win. I can't win over the farmers in Iowa because they're all they're all so focused on getting ethanol and other farm subsidies." Mm-hmm. So he didn't campaign there. He made abundantly clear. It was very publicly said, "I'm not campaigning in Iowa," and ultimately put all of his eggs in the, in the New Hampshire basket, and that worked out well for him. And obviously, New Hampshire was thrilled with someone who was just campaigning here all the time. And uh, and surprised, definitely surprised uh, George W. Bush in 2000. And, and then it once again, surprised Mitt Romney in 2008. Uh, so, but allocating those resources is, is a critical, critical uh, aspect of campaign management and, uh, and, and trying to identify how you can, how you can sort of spread the wealth around is, is also critical as well. So you talked about the you, earlier. You talked about the phases to the primary season. Talk about those again. Give us a little more detail on what you say those phases are. Yeah. So the candidates start to get into the race. This was, a, by the way, this was a very late year. A lot of the candidates didn't get in the race until Q two, but historically, a lot of them start to get in the race in Q one, and um, those candidates that that really begins what I call a curiosity phase, where you start to get the a lot of, a lot of the activists of the ones who start going to their events just to see what's going on, trying to figure out to figure out these candidates, what take the measure of them, and that that phase usually goes through the summertime. A lot of people just in the summertime. New Hampshire is a beautiful state. A lot of there's a lot of stuff to do here in the summertime, and people take advantage of that. Showing up at political events is really not <laughs> not high on that list. But again, once we start getting into the fall. Uh, that's really, I think, when when most folks start to say, "Okay, I need to start diet, tuning into this," and and you start to see uh, events that that might have brought fifty people. The same candidate will come two months later and say, "On October versus a, a, an August," and instead of fifty people, it's suddenly a hundred and fifty people. And uh, that it's also the word of mouth thing. I, I think that's highly, highly underrated. 
if you're if you're putting together a strong campaign and you've got a good grassroots structure, the word of mouth piece really starts to drive a, a lot of this. Where someone will go to an event and then they'll t- they'll tell their coworkers or tell their neighbors, "Hey, I just saw so and so at at this event. Did a great job. You should come next time." And then they drag their coworkers and their friends with them, and that's how it really starts to to trickle down into the into the maybe less and less politically engaged uh, and and starts to pull them in and make no joke make no bones about it this this is this is something that we take seriously the presidential primary and i'll just put that in perspective in 19 and 2016 the the last uh competitive republican primary here in new hampshire 285,000 people 285,000 people voted in the republican primary Compare that to the state primary, where we had an open seat governor's race and a competitive uh, first first congressional district. We only have two congressional districts here, very competitive first congressional district primary. And we ended up having 116,000 people vote in the state primary. So 285,000 versus 116,000. So it really does show you how much lower into the sort of the politically engaged uh, people who actually will go and vote in these primaries are. Yeah. Uh, you held watch parties for both, I think, for both debates in New Hampshire. What were some of the reactions from people who are who are at these watch parties, and and the, sort of their reaction to the de- both debate number one and debate number two of the Republican primary? Yeah. So one of the things I did before both of the watch parties is I asked by show of hands, for how many folks have already committed to a candidate? How many folks were were sure that they knew who they're voting for? And in both watch parties, and both watch parties. One one we had last week was was in our smaller Portsmouth office. We had about sixty five people. The one we had in Manchester was closer to a hundred people. And in both instances, there were only about four or five hands that went up when I said, "If they who's com- got a candidate they're committed to." Then I asked, "How many people here have narrowed it down to two or three candidates?" And prob- and, and I would say the majority of of the hands went up at that point. And then I asked, "How many people here are totally wide open?" And again, it was probably, it was a smattering in both more more so than the committed, but but uh, definitely people who are trying to trying to figure this out. So uh, our debate watch parties were, were not rah rah sessions uh, because we were sur- filling it with the supporters of one candidate or the other. Right. It, it really was the people who were who were uh, trying to understand these candidates and, and and take the measure of them. And so uh, I think that that was really the most durable takeaway when I've been talking with people after both parties is is that watching these people just process what they've heard and try to understand who they thought did the best. And and that, that to me is, is what, you know, obviously a function that, that AFP wants to do is we want to provide a, a forum where people get better understanding of these candidates. Yeah. Well, I guess final question for you. I mean, who do you think right now, as you look at it, you, you talked about people saying, well, I've narrowed it down to a few candidates. Who's doing well in your mind in New Hampshire? And maybe you can, maybe you have some who you don't think are doing well, but generally, who do you think is, is at least performing pretty well right now in New Hampshire? Well, obviously, former President Trump has a, a core of support. Um, I would say that, that that the support he has right now isn't enough to win the primary where he is right now. Uh, he's going to have to, if he's going to win the primary, he's going to have to grow his support uh, from where he is at the, at the moment. Uh, but certainly the two candidates who are spending a lot of time here, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Ambassador Haley, they're seeing a benefit from that time they spent here, as well as, as Governor DeSantis, who has got a fantastic infrastructure 
probably the best the best campaign infrastructure um, in the state. So those are the three who I would re- would describe as the midfield at this point. Yeah. How about anybody who's just came out and you thought, well, they might have done better, but but just aren't catching fire. I mean, probably some of the ones that didn't make the debate, I would assume. Well, that's obvious, obviously the case. Yeah. Uh, certainly, certainly uh, Senator Tim Scott has done a fantastic job of driving up his favorability rating. Yeah. Nobody dislikes Tim Scott, it seems. Everyone, everyone likes him. But that, has the, that, that favorability has not translated yet into support. But I will point out that, that if you have very high favorable people like you, that you are somebody who at the very tail end, particularly if the race gets a little nasty, somebody who can really pop at the end. And he's really focused on, on sort of building up uh, a favorable impression of himself. And, and that's something that can be very beneficial uh, as we get closer to the actual election day. Yeah. Well, Greg, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to to kind of give us that view. Like I said, most people around the country don't get this view of a presidential campaign. So it's it's really pretty pretty neat to hear from you and, and hear the things that are going on in New Hampshire. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. It's a beautiful state. Come and visit. You can actually show up and chances are that if you spend a week here, you can probably see most of the candidates. <laughs> That's right. All right, Greg. Hey, thanks. Thanks for being with us. Look, here's here's the reality. This is important business. Greg talks about this and all these candidates moving in and out of New Hampshire. And it's really important to them and to their campaigns, but really important to the nation. This is a really important decision about who the nation's leader will be, who their executive leader will be. And so we can't take that for granted. Uh, Certainly the voters of New Hampshire don't take it for granted. They take it very seriously. And it's great to hear uh, from Greg. Listen, liberty and freedom, they're easily taken for granted. Don't take that for granted. Go out there, defend freedom, defend liberty. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.